Hi, and welcome to the Soul on Fire Bible Study Podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Justin. Get ready to let God's consuming flame take hold of your life. Join us as we follow along with the Chapel High School Ministries Sunday Night Bible Study in the Book of John. Each week we'll dive deeper into another chapter and demonstrate how God speaks to us all through His Word. Hey, hey, everybody, we are back. We're excited to study chapter five with you. So this chapter to me is all about God's authority. And I'm really excited to dive in because it's a question we don't really ask ourselves all the time. Does he have the authority to do what he does? And John five is going to answer that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Justin, you want to get us started by reading? Yeah. So here we go with verse one. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the Pool of Bethesda, with five covered porches, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. All right, so starting at verse 1, we're going back to that map that we keep talking about. And right now he, Jesus, is heading back to Jerusalem. We have to remember, we have to remember that Galilee's on top of the map, Samaria's in the middle, it's a large region, and Judea is at the bottom. And now we're going to Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Bethesda, which is that name of the pool, actually means house of mercy. And the pool of Bethesda was located, I thought this was super interesting, near the Sheep's Gate. So the whole city is encompassed by tall walls with different gates and people can go through. So why is this interesting? Because the Sheep Gate is the one that the Jewish people would use to bring in the lamb or the sheep that they would be bringing to Jerusalem to sacrifice. And Jesus is going through that gate. It's just, it's such a great symbolism because Jesus is going to be the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we see that symbolism throughout his life, you know, in little ways. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. So also, and I know we're going through this one pretty fast today. Um, If we look at verse 3. So verse 3 was... Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, lay on the porches. So based on what archaeologists have uncovered, they believe that there's this specific area that appears to be described the same exact way in the Bible that they were able to uncover, and they believe that that area is the Pool of Bethesda. So in that area, there's a series of pools connected by five different porches, and Based on those remnants, they believe that because the porches are at different layers, it would be difficult for someone who had trouble walking, like the lame person we're about to see in the story, to get down to the pools because the porches led up and down and there was lots of stairs. So that being said, I just have to think about how many people who had no real life because they were ill They couldn't keep a job and something was afflicting them just sitting on these stairs and on these different porches, just waiting, trying to push to get closer and closer to the water as they got more and more desperate. You know, it just really gives you that visual picture. So in 
the NLT Bible, as well as a lot of English Standard Version Bibles, as well as a lot of NIV Bibles, don't have a verse 4. And so I thought that was super interesting, and I'm like, where did verse 4 go in my Bible? (laughs) So I did a little deep dive on that to figure out what's been going on. The King James Version, however, a lot of those ones have verse 4. So why would it be left out? Why would it still be there? I'm going to read a little paragraph for you from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, or CARM, C-A-R-M dot org. Again, not from the Bible, but it gives some insight as to why the verse is missing. Okay, so it says here that roughly two dozen manuscripts, scribes, put asterisk marks at the verse to warn the next scribe who would copy the manuscript that the verse was likely not original. So to top it all off, four of the last five Greek words that would be in John 4 aren't found anywhere else in John's writings. A lot of evidence points to the fact that this might have been added later. And once you hear what verse 4 is, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to read it for you out of the King James Version. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So it might explain some context. Why were people standing around this pool? They thought that if they went in the water, when it was bubbling up, that they would be healed. But the other versions of the Bible don't have this, so why wouldn't they have it? If people think that this was added later, how can we be sure whether or not it was an angel that stirred it. I mean, that was very presumptuous. You know, and to think about it like this, if an angel, which would be sent by God, was stirring this water, then why would Jesus say there's no hope for him in that pool? You know, I'm not sure exactly what was going on at this time. We have no idea why the water was bubbling. Could have been from a natural spring or something like that. That's the mystery of verse 4 answered. So in verse 5, I noted that 38 years was probably this man's entire life up to this point. Like, the life expectancy around that time was not that long. This man, if if 38 years wasn't his whole life, then he became sick or injured at a very, very young age. So as long as his life has been... He's known this struggle of this injury or the sickness that he's had. Yeah, I had that too. I haven't even lived for 38 years. To have a diagnosis like he has where he's unable to walk, he's unable to work, he's unable to do anything. All his dreams, anything he was passionate about, if he ever was even old enough to develop those, would be gone for him. At this time, there were not occupations very often for people that couldn't actually walk. I think about myself when, and I put myself in his shoes about how devastating any kind of diagnosis for somebody can be. And I would have imagined that if he had exhausted all his options, and right, I'm putting myself in his shoes. If I had exhausted all my options for healing, meaning doctors, prayers, rituals, holy men, all the things they could have approached in those days, he must have been at his rope's end to be sitting at this pool hoping for a healing because there's a lot of other more logical ways to try to be healed. 
and yet he's sitting at this pool just waiting for the water to be stirred. I would have thought at this point that he wouldn't have had any hope left because this is the only option to sit and wait around and let his life wither away, you know? Yeah. Moving on to verse six. One thing I really enjoy when I'm reading about verse six is the wording. The the wording hits a little heavier. It says, when Jesus saw him, he knew he had been ill for a long time. He didn't come up to the man and ask the man if he had been ill. He didn't need to. He knew that the man was ill. And I just wrote down, isn't it great that Jesus knows what we need without us having to tell him? Mm-hmm. Isn't, it, isn't it great that he knows what we need even before we ourselves know what we need? Yeah, you know, I had mentioned that when Jesus approached this man, he would have been a stranger to him. This stranger, he did not attempt to go to Jesus and ask him for help, but Jesus came to him anyways because he knew him. I just thought that was awesome. And because Jesus is God and knows this whole man's life, he knows what kinds of struggles that this man has been through. He knows that he's been through periods of desperation and doubt and might not have any more hope in this world, which is why he's letting himself wither away beside this pool. Yeah, so building on that point, when we move on to verse 7, you could just see the man so focused on the pool being his healing that he misses salvation right in front of him. He doesn't really understand that his salvation, his healing's right in front of him in the form of Jesus. Jesus was right there to heal him, but not in the way that the man expected. Looking in our own lives, it makes me question, do we let Jesus heal us or do we expect something specific? Mm -hmm. Do we give God, do we give Jesus the opportunity to heal us in the way that they have planned? We can want what we want, but God's ways are always higher, as we're told in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. These last two verses actually make me wonder why Jesus would ask this. Because if the man is sitting by this pool, you would think, isn't that obvious? He wants to be healed. But this man had given up, likely, on his hope to be healed or have an actual life again. So maybe he was bitter because he had no one to bring him to the pool. Uh, Maybe he simply thought, wow, this kind stranger is willing to bring me to the pool. Based on his next question, right? Oh, will you bring me there? But based on what the man says, he did not see Jesus, like you said, Justin, as a potential healer. He probably had no clue who Jesus was at this point. And unlike everyone else around the pool concerned with their own healing or their loved one's healing, Jesus saw him and chose to speak to him specifically for a reason. And I just love that. Getting back into verse 9. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. Yeah, you know, I didn't say this one before. It tied into 8 and 9. So 8 was the one where he said, Stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And nine said, instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So two things that significantly stood out to me uh, when I read these verses is that the man wasn't just given physical healing in this moment. 
he was given true healing. In verse 13, Jesus is going to say to stop sinning, healing the heart, the soul, and the body. And think about it. The physical implication meant so much more than just, oh, wow, I can walk. Now I can start my life, right? It meant now I can have any kind of hope in any kind of future. I think that's really powerful. I'm sure his first thought was, wasn't, yeah, great. Now I can go work a job like everybody else. (laughs) He was like, oh my goodness, I can actually live a real life, a real life. I know that in, in Justin, you mentioned this. I know that I've gone to God before and prayed for healing for myself or for someone else. And the physical healing doesn't happen. But with patience, I personally have seen how God used sickness to heal my heart and my soul and other people's heart and soul and to ultimately draw us closer to him. You know, because we don't always get the physical healing when we ask for it. But this healing that we see Jesus perform is way more important than just his body. So in this instance, right, Jesus shows us that he has the power and the authority to heal it all, all of our illnesses of heart, mind, soul, or body. So if you're asking for a healing right now from God, just remember that God's main focus is to heal your heart. Yeah, the second thing that I noticed is that Jesus has barely healed this man, and immediately there is controversy. This can also be true in our life because when we believe in Jesus for the first time and he heals us of our broken life and he redeems us, we might get pushback from the people who are used to us living a certain way, living sinful lives. So maybe because of Jesus, you don't want to spend every morning drowning your life in distractions anymore. Maybe you don't want to tell those mean jokes anymore. Maybe you don't want to gossip anymore. Maybe you don't want to steal anymore or lie anymore. And your friends and family might not get that. So the message of Jesus is for everyone, but that doesn't mean that everyone wants it. And we see that immediately with this man, right? He has been healed. It's a miracle. And the Pharisees don't even see the value in it. That happens to us too. We can be healed by Jesus in our current modern everyday lives and people won't appreciate it. Yeah, that's honestly a great bridge into exactly what I took from this section, which is a man who didn't know Jesus or have faith in him yet was healed. This wasn't a man who knew Jesus. This wasn't a man who had already accepted Jesus into his heart. This wasn't a man who had done good works for Jesus. It was a man who didn't know Jesus And it shows that Jesus's power is not limited by our faith. The man had his faith in the pool, and yet Jesus still healed him. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees accused this man of carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath, but this law is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. These were the laws that were created by the Jewish leaders. These same laws are the ones that they used to condemn Jesus later. And it's important to know scripture to understand what is asked of us by God and what has become tradition by preference. We see many preferences get in the way of our worship today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. So jumping into 13, the man didn't know for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father is always working and so am I. 
So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. Okay, so I'll go first here. I started this little section that I'm talking about from verses 10 to 15, and 10 was the start of where we said, so the Jewish leaders objected, right? They said that this man couldn't work on the Sabbath by Sabbath by carrying his mat. So the Pharisees obviously don't even care that a man was just healed after he'd been sick for his almost entire life. They were more concerned with the fact that they didn't give this person authorization to heal on the Sabbath. He claimed he had authority to do something, and they said, no, based on the law, you don't. So we have to remember, too, that they thought that they were the keepers of the Jewish laws and traditions and interpretations, and that they were only God's messengers, so they had the authority. So he's challenging them, basically, in this. If someone outside of this group claims to have this authority, there's nothing special about the Pharisees anymore, right? They could lose their power over the people altogether, not to mention how this drop in authority may affect their relationship with Rome, who used them to influence the people. There's a lot of speculation about that. That being said, their whole identity is held up in the fact that they think they have the authority, so everybody else does not, including Jesus. Yeah, and as we look a little bit ahead, one thing I really kind of honed in on is the line that Jesus says in 14, it doesn't mean that sin caused the man's disability. Mm -hmm. In John 9, 1 through 3, we see Jesus say that no sin from the blind man or his parents caused the blindness, but he does not state that that may not be a cause in other cases. The fear of something worse is, is the man losing his eternal soul by not turning to Christ? I agree with you. I had a lot about the same thing. So something I asked myself, which is a question that I don't have an answer to, is why did the man go and tell the Pharisees what Jesus said? I have no idea. Maybe he was so excited. Maybe he was pulled into questioning. So it's really hard to say. I have that question. We'll never know the answer exactly, whether or not he was being questioned or whether or not he was just so excited He wanted to tell everybody. I mean, they immediately went to him and said, hey, you're not allowed to break these rules on the Sabbath. But maybe he was just so filled with joy. We can can speculate, but we may never know. So after verse 15, that's the last verse that refers to this man at the pool of Bethesda. And we're going to go on to a section where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And Linda, who is super, super awesome— had some great insights. She did the big teach on our Sunday night Bible study, and here is Linda giving us the scoop to summarize this section. John chapter 5. What stood out to me? So many things stood out, but the one I think about most is that the man lying there had been in that state for 38 years. That's a really long time. Then Jesus comes and asks him if he wants to be well. That seems like a really crazy question to ask. I mean, he was at the pool of Bethesda, right? Isn't that why they went there in hopes of being the first in the pool when the water was stirred so that they could be healed? Didn't he have some kind of hope? Well, you know, Jesus sees us and he sees our hearts. So maybe the man was there because he had done it for so long and Jesus knew he had given up on hope. Jesus is our hope, even if we don't know him or understand. The beauty of this passage is that the man didn't go to Jesus. Jesus came to him. 
the man didn't have to get himself together as we sometimes think we have to in order to be loved, accepted, and healed by Jesus. He went to him and he healed him. Jesus had mercy on him and he healed him. Jesus has mercy on us too. And just like the man, Jesus meets us right where we are, no matter what we've done. He loves us. Super awesome. So I love how in verse 17, it says, my father is always working and so am I. Basically, God himself has no such rule. These are man-made traditions that they've inherited, right? And then in verse 18, immediately they're like, yeah, this guy's a problem, so we need to take him out. (laughs) And that makes me laugh because I'm like, okay, either Jesus is just all of a sudden that big of a threat, which is definitely true. He's going to be a threat to their authority. Or maybe they've done this before. You know, maybe they have silenced other people. Would you be so surprised if they had? If there was a troublemaker and they just said, you know what, we're going to take care of this guy. He's raising too many red flags. The people are, you know, he's going to be a problem. We need to get rid of him. I wouldn't even be surprised if they were planning on doing it to John. Yeah. It's just that they so quickly jump to it. They see Jesus do this miracle and they're like, all right, yep, take him out, boys. (laughs) So, yeah, that really was kind of shocking to me. It's like, oh, they saw this miracle. They're like, how dare you? And then they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to kill him. We're going to try to kill him. Okay, so starting in 19, so Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything that he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, So the son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the father judges no one. Instead, he has given the son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son is certainly not honoring the father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. So when I confront these verses that we just went over, I kind of split it into two sections. I kind of took 19 through 23 as a whole, and then I confronted 24 on its own because 24 is a really, really important point. In 19 to 23, this reminds me of how John begins the gospel We came to the understanding that Jesus is the word, and in the beginning, he was with God. Jesus created the world. When God spoke, his word acted. That word is Jesus. Here, Jesus shows the submissiveness to God's intention, though. He is not subordinate. Jesus understands the workings of God as he sees and witnesses God's role in everything around him. He notes a very important truth that the Father sent Jesus and gave him authority to judge in the way that he takes our place. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is by God's own design, not as an act of undercutting. We see this as Jesus prays in the garden before the crucifixion. Jesus asks that he may not have to go through this path, but that God's will will be done. We can see this in Matthew 26, 36 through 56. Still, despite the Jewish religious leaders' claims to know everything about the Old Testament, 
Jesus makes clear that you have no connection to the Father if you deny his Son. Yeah, I agree with you. So yeah, the point it raises for me is that here's two things that the Pharisees are going to be thinking while Jesus is talking. They're going to accuse him of two things. One of them is breaking the Sabbath, but the other one is blasphemy because he's calling himself the Son of God, which we know is not blasphemy. He is indeed the Son of God. I love in verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. And then verse 21, just as a little refresher too. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. So the reason I say that again is because here Jesus sees God's hand and purpose in everything that is happening or that has happened in the world. And this even includes future events. So Jesus says greater works are to come, like raising people from the dead, which we already know, and most importantly, forgiving sins, which is the big act of love that Jesus is here for. So he continues to say that because God has power, so does he have power, a.k.a. Jesus is God, if you haven't already gotten that one. It is proclaiming his deity, which means divine status, creator, supreme authority, supreme being, and divinity, which is what is going to push the Pharisees off the deep end. This is going to be the ultimate thing that sets them off. So the phrase here, give life, can have double meaning, earthly life and life through spiritual rebirth or eternal life. And then in verse 22, Jesus says himself that the son is given authority to judge. So the Jewish people believed that that was a right only God himself possessed. And everything that Jesus says has so many layers. So this could also be referring to how he will judge, dividing the wheat and the tares, the believers and the unbelievers in the last day. So Jesus has the authority to prove that he is worthy of honor and prove that he and God the Father are one and basically how he has the right to be worshipped. And then last but not least, in verse 24, he introduces the main reason for coming, which is the gospel message. This would make any hard-hearted religious person, including the Pharisees, probably pretty upset. They thought that they were already following God's law and that they were already being given the inheritance of eternal life just by being born into the Jewish nation and by keeping the law of Moses. So this idea that they had to believe that Jesus is God in order to have eternal life is going to be a real head-scratcher for them, and it's not going to make any sense. They're, they're blind in their thought processes. The wording here in 24 is all the proof we ever need of already given eternal life. For those who accept Jesus, notice the wording grants present possession and not future gain. Yeah, very, very true. Verse 25 through 30. And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God. And those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those 
who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Wow. And such a strong message coming from Jesus. So powerful. Yeah. Uh, I wrote about this, that God the Father was not created because he pre-exists all. It was he who formed creation, giving life to all. In Genesis 2-7, God has created Adam's body, but it does not live until God himself breathes life into it. God breathing life is not just an action of animation, but the making of Adam in his own image. We learn from Jesus in the last chapter that God is spirit. This is giving Adam life through giving Adam a spirit, which is of God itself. God is life. And God gave some of his spirit to form Adam as he does to form us all. God and in turn, Jesus, have power over life because they are in fact life. So something that I kind of did a little bit of digging on is that verse 27, it talks about how he's proving his authority again. He has the right to judge. So this authority to judge is actually predicted in Daniel through a vision of the future. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and this is in the English Standard Version. And this section is called, The Son of Man is Given Dominion. And remember how they keep, he keeps saying, Son of Man, Son of Man. The Pharisees would know he's referring to Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is referring to God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and all glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I just thought that was awesome. And the Pharisees would use this as evidence that Jesus is blaspheming. They would say that, right? Because... They're not recognizing his authority. They're not recognizing that he is who he says he is. Yeah. Then moving forward, as I was looking at 28 through 30, Jesus makes two very important points. First, he informs us that his promise goes beyond the grave. He notes here that even those who have already passed will hear his voice and raise. Second, as we are meant to model our lives after Christ, he gives an example of how he lives in obedience with God the Father. Even Jesus shows us how to look to a higher power, even though he is 100% God and 100% man. Yeah, and you know what? From verses 28 and 29, to add to that, that this judgment that he's going to enforce is going to be based on the way we live our lives. So when it says, those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who've continued in evil will rise to experience judgment, he's not talking about what humans consider good and evil. So we can't get to heaven by simply trying to be good. True faith will produce good works of God. The NIV version even says, true faith in Christ results in changed lives, lived in obedience to Christ as Lord. That's even reinforced. If we look at Mark 10, verse 18, it says, Jesus himself even says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And in Romans 3, uh, verse 10, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. So what Jesus is saying right here is that believers in him will experience eternal life 
and those who've done evil will experience judgment. Okay, we're going to go 31 to 35. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is also testifying about me. And I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. In my Bible, the heading for this section we're going into is Witnesses to Jesus. So if you would, during this section, imagine Jesus as if he was on trial. And in a normal trial, if you claim something, you have to back that up with evidence or with witnesses who can produce that evidence. And that's what we're going to see Jesus doing in this section. Yeah, this is just a really strong callback to the beginning chapters of John. It's a really strong callback to following John the Baptist's ministry in the beginning chapters of John. In verses 32 and 35, Jesus mentions that someone else is testifying about him, but he isn't talking about John the Baptist here. He's referring to God the Father, even though that should be the most important. The people probably would not accept this witness because they don't believe he was sent by God. So the first witness that Jesus talks about is God the Father. I got to answer this question as I was going through. Who does this show me God is? Jesus says he doesn't have to prove anything to anyone in these verses. He doesn't have to prove to them that he's the son of God. He really, really doesn't. But he's going to list these witnesses because he cares so much about us that he wants us to hear it and be saved. And he says it right there in those verses. And then he also lists number two, second witness is John the Baptist. 36. But I have a greater witness than John. My teachings and my miracles, the Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face. And you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one he has sent to you. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. So the third witness that Jesus gives is his teachings and his miracles. They're evidence that he was sent by God. So the Pharisees have not heard God's voice or seen his face like Jesus talks about in verse 37 and 38, but Jesus has. And the thing that really stands out to me in this section is in verses 39 and 40. This is the ouch moment, I think, where he really calls out the Pharisees. They have devoted their whole lives to studying scripture, and they can't even see that the scripture points to Jesus. That's what he says right here. The scriptures point to me. He's like, duh. (laughs) So this also leads to the point that if we want to know Jesus, we have to go to scripture to know him because the scriptures point to Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, it all points to Jesus. So you can ask yourself, knowing that, How can we apply this to our life? Yeah, so if we look back in Deuteronomy 19.15, when it concerns justice, God establishes that one cannot be convicted on the testimony of one witness. It must be established by two or three witnesses. And we see this in Christ's speech here, and we see Christ make this point in many other times. To answer your question, 
Jesus also notes a simple and solid truth, as we have already read in this book. Creation, the Old Testament, God's purpose has always pointed to Jesus. This is where the Jewish religious leaders, who knew the Old Testament, should have been open to Jesus. However, they let their own wants and their own interests get in the way. And again, to answer your question, that's where I see it applying to my life, is what do we let get in our way of Jesus? Do we have certain things that we put Jesus in a box and say that Jesus can only do certain things or demand that Jesus fix certain parts of our life but not others? Instead of letting Jesus, knowing his ways are higher, like I said earlier in Isaiah, instead of letting Jesus do the healing, do we get in his way? So, right, are we limiting what God can do in our life by not believing that his ways are higher? So true. So one of your phrases here, kind of an ouch point, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jesus begins with your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. Ouch. (laughs) For I have come to you in my father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses in whom you put all your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Wow, wow. Do you want to, what do you have about this part? Well, I just noted that here Jesus really drives home the point that the scripture and creation led to him. He tells the people who put Moses above Christ that they claim knowledge that is empty. Mm-hmm. If they read from Moses, he knew Christ and wrote of him. For those that deny Christ now would deny him again and again. He states that those who claim Moses but not Christ should be accused to God by Moses. I know. Ouch, 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 ouch. Yeah, so really quick going back, I forgot to mention that the fourth of the witnesses Jesus brings forward is the scripture, and you just explained it right. Even in the Old Testament, Moses knew about Jesus, and yet these people trust in Moses. In verse 44, they are focused on the approval and the praise of other people, not focused on God. Therefore, they've missed the praise that comes from God. They're so concerned about praising each other, having other people in the community praise them. And there definitely are blessings for obedience. God talks about it all throughout his word. They may not always be what we think we want to be blessed with, but he knows what we need. He All throughout these chapters, he's talking about how he is the sustenance, right? He is what can satisfy us, right? Our thirst in this life. And he's focused on the soul. He's focused on the heart. He knows what we need better than we do. So then going to verses 45 and 47, just like Justin talked about, Moses is whom you put your hopes in. So the Jewish law has even been referred to as the law of Moses. And they thought very highly of them. And why shouldn't they, right? He was obedient and he followed God. That's why Moses was esteemed. But even Moses wrote about Jesus. So they claim to know the law. It's also known as the law of Moses and follow it. But even though Jesus was literally part of that law, they still won't believe. And I think we even went over this in a previous chapter, how Jesus is mentioned by Moses. 
If not, we'll definitely get to it because it keeps coming up over and over and over again. All right. And I, as you know, I like to go over the W's that I came up with at the end of each chapter. So, wow, what stood out to me? It stood out to me that the Pharisees were presented with and refused so many witnesses. They refused to acknowledge the miracle of the sick man, even though it was right in front of them. So they knew scripture and yet they denied it. They denied God the Father as a witness. And I just think they had to be so stubborn. These people appear to love their sin more than they value their soul. Wonder, what does this make me wonder about? We can't know this, but I wonder if any of the Pharisees walked away after this big conversation and reconsidered their choices or took any of it to heart. We know later on that a lot of the Pharisees will still be against Jesus, but I wonder if any of them had asked for forgiveness or thought about Jesus's words and maybe changed their minds about him. Why? So what is the main point of this? The main point that I took from it is that I believe it's to show us that no matter what traditions and laws humans create about religion, God is above it all. He has the authority to save. Jesus has the authority to speak for the Father. He has the authority to give life eternal. And that's more important than any man-made rules or anything someone tells you about how religion has to be. Without going too much into detail, I think we've all seen traditionalism impact us in one way or another. Someone trying to enforce a man-made rule on a God that lives in spirit. If you have any questions about how God wants you to live as a Christian or about discipleship, go to his word. And if you can't find that rule in his word, then it's not something that God himself created, just something that man wants to enforce. So who, who does this show me God is? God is ruler supreme. He's merciful. He's just, and he has the ultimate authority. Jesus has the ultimate authority. So where can we apply this to our lives? I was asking myself, am I trying to compartmentalize by putting man-made rules ahead of serving him? We don't want to be like the Pharisees, more concerned about how they look instead of who he is and who they are and who they are serving. In the same way that Jesus called witnesses, our lives are also witnesses for him. If someone wants to get to know Jesus, Are we vouching for him by letting them get to know him through us? If people notice that you live a changed life through Christ, are we letting them know that the reason for the change is because of him? Yeah, so that's what I have. All right, everybody, it has been so much fun studying with you. This was chapter five. Can't wait to get into chapter six. We'll see you next time. Bye. (laughs) 